All right, church, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, writes. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live or do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Bible on the ground. One of my favorite TV shows is Seinfeld. Those of you who know me know that truth about me. Uh, so much so, this is ingrained in me, that I had this quote that I was going to start my sermon with today that I was certain was like a true adage. And I thought, well, I better just research it. And it turns out it's a Seinfeld quote. Not an actual thing. So let me give you the story because I've still got to use the quote, right? Uh, In Seinfeld, those of you who are familiar with it, Jerry and George are two of the main characters. They're friends. And George is sort of a 'er ne'er-do-well, right? And kind of negative and and woe is me and nothing ever goes right for him. Um, And and, uh, George's fiance has has died and uh, they've started a foundation uh, in her name. and, And George sits on the board of the foundation, uh, and he doesn't like it there, so he's trying to, to spend as little time as he can, but he's convinced that the other people on the board don't like him or are out to get him. So he, he devises a plan that he's going to leave in the middle of a meeting, and he's going to accidentally forget his briefcase, and inside the briefcase will be a running uh, tape recorder, recording all the things they say about him when he's not there. And so he does this, and he comes back a couple minutes later, and he picks up the briefcase, and he brings it home, and he listens to it. And there's just a couple of muffled sounds, and then a loud bang, and the briefcase itself is kind of dented and torn up a little bit. And so George goes on this long quest to figure out what has actually happened. So much so that he takes a day off of work, and he builds for himself Uh, a a setting or a scene of the boardroom with different characters in it to try to figure out what has happened. And he brings this childlike creation over to Jerry's apartment. And he says to Jerry, this is what has happened. And Jerry says, well, what happened? He says, this is all we know. (laughs) But then he says, and this is my quote that I think fits with James's story today. He said, but... Whatever is going on here is like an onion. The more layers you peel back, the more it stinks. (laughs) So what I want to suggest to you here at the end of James chapter 4 is, it starts off sort of easy, right? Making plans. But the more layers you peel back, the more it stinks. So let's engage and build some kind of childish diorama like George said and see if we can figure this out together. What is it that James is confronting in these people? We can say that the action that they're doing is they're making plans, right? 
So we have to ask the question, and it seems pretty obvious, but let's ask it together. Is making plans bad? Now, if you tend to be a spontaneous person like me, you would tend to want to say yes, but you know that to live at least a quasi-effective life, you need to make plans, right? Making plans is not bad. We make budgets, we make vocational plans, we save for our retirement, we save for our kids' education, uh, we make choices about schools we want to go to or be part of, all of these different things. It's important that we make plans. So what is James's issue with them? Well, he seems to think that their plans are what we could call presumptuous. That they presume upon God without actually allowing God to be part of the plan making. Does this make sense? So James is wanting to say there's a difference between planning for yourself apart from God and planning for yourself within the realm of the kingdom of God and the things God calls us to. And oh, by the way, James says, there are a couple things you need to know about human beings if you haven't figured it out already. And he says two really important things. The first thing that is true of all human beings, those people and us today, is that we have what we could call limited knowledge, right? And is that, as James pretty uh, profoundly says it, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, we can all testify to this truth, having lived the last two years of life that we have lived. Plans that we thought we had all set up and were right to happen, and a global pandemic enters our world. But it doesn't just take global pandemics. It is that all the time the plans that we have are upended by the unexpected. And oftentimes, let's just be honest with each other, we love each other and we're vulnerable here. Oftentimes, they are simply unended, upended by our own naivete. Are they not? Uh, right after college, I, I was, uh, worked in a church and, and I wanted to go to seminary. And so Rachel and I, we made plans. Uh, we, I wanted to go to seminary in Chicago, Trinity uh, Seminary. And so we made plans. We started saving lots of money so we could be able to go there. Uh, we set up career paths or, or, or job opportunities for Rachel there. So we'd saved a whole chunk of money. Uh, and when we got to Chicago... Uh, Rachel was going to work full-time. We had all this money in the bank, and I was going to be a student full-time. Uh, and the plans were great. And two months into our time in Chicago, uh, Rachel was pregnant with Jackson. And all of a sudden, every plan that we had made, all good, I think, were radically changed by something completely unexpected. We hadn't planned for it, and yet a wonderful blessing uh, that, that we were, were then and are even more completely grateful for. Life is filled with these kind of stories. We have limited knowledge. We don't know what the future actually holds. James wants them to know that. The second thing, and probably even more important, is that human beings are not just limited in their knowledge, they are limited in their power. Is that we only have so much power over things, correct? We all wish we had a lot more than we have. And James is saying, listen, this, this plan that you've laid out for here has a whole lot of variables that you may not be considering, right? We're going to go to such and such a town. We're going to live there for a year. We're going to sell stuff. We're going to make a profit. And James is saying, you might have incredible ability, incredible talents, lots of connections, and yet, what happens if you're not permitted to go to that town? We see that happen even in Bible stories. 
Or what happens if the things you're trying to sell or trade aren't that popular? Or what happens if you end up actually not turning a profit? That is that these people James is addressing, just like us, tend to think they have much more influence over things than they actually do. That everything is not self-determined. Does this make sense? But there's something deeper going on here when James is talking about power. He's not just talking about influence, because certainly people do go to cities and do sell and trade things and do make profits, and they do plan for it. It does work out incredibly well. There's actually nothing wrong with that. But James is also saying to them, and I think pulling deeply off a famous parable of Jesus, that you also don't have the power to suggest you're going to wake up and breathe tomorrow. Is that you are not guaranteed a tomorrow. Remember the parable Jesus tells of the rich fool? I think our kids are learning about that today. It's kind of crazy. Jesus says, listen, this guy is so rich and he's building extra towers to keep all of his stuff and he doesn't even know he's not going to be alive tomorrow. James is trying to help them think differently about their world and their stuff and their things the same way Jesus was. To have wealth is not a bad thing. To have plans is not a bad thing. To be an entrepreneur and run a business is not a bad thing. To go to another city and do it is not necessarily a bad thing. But are you living within the kingdom worldview that Jesus grants us? Are you doing something altogether your own? James would suggest, I think, and common wisdom would suggest, to hold... (laughs) And, and grasp firmly to plans or have confidence in them apart from these human realities is incredibly dangerous. But this honestly isn't the main thrust of what James is actually after, is it? Because in bringing up those two human lacks, he's causing us to think about God, who is what we are not, right? So we lack the ability to know what will happen tomorrow. And yet, God knows all things. It's what theologians call His omniscience. God, in fact, does know what will happen tomorrow. And we lack power or the ability to to influence things as we determine. And God has the power to influence things as He determines. What theologians call His omnipotence. He has the power to do what He wants to do. And after all, He's the Creator of this whole thing anyway. And so James says, a way better way to plan then is to say, if the Lord wills, I will go here or there or do this or that. Now we have to pause for a minute and ask what's really going on here. Because all too often what happens in understanding this this text here and applying it to our lives in practical ways is, We take this statement, if the Lord wills, and we slap it onto our plans in an animistic sort of tagline, right? You know what I mean by that? Like, good luck charm, right? We throw the pixie dust on it. Like, here's my plans, God, if you will, right? Which means, make it happen, you know? That's not at all what James is talking about here. He's actually talking about making statements to our own hearts, about who God is and who we are. He's actually talking about trust. Do you see this? 
Now this verse is actually has very little to do with plans or vocations or entrepreneurship or which city you should do business in. It has everything to do with what are you actually trusting as you engage in your vocation or your calling or your business transactions. What are you trusting? Are you trusting your plans? Are you trusting your freedom and your ability and your talents and your giftings? Or ultimately, as you take risks in this life, whether they be spiritual uh, or, uh, or whether they be vocational or whether they be financial, uh, are, you, are you doing them in, in, a, in a trust-bound way of yourself? Or are you living holistically in a way that is trusting God for your sustenance? Does this make sense? This does not mean that James is saying you shouldn't take risks. Just, and it also doesn't mean James is saying, throw caution to the wind, do whatever you want, because you can trust God. He's talking about a worldview. Do you see this? That is, who actually sustains things? If you're up or if you're down, can you trust God? If business is going super good in that foreign city, or if it's a struggle, what can you actually trust? Do you see this? And James is saying there's only one thing, one person that you can trust. And it's God. Well, let's keep peeling the onion, right? Because we've said it's going to stink if we keep peeling it. But James doesn't stop there. If he stopped there, we're like, well, this is kind of good wisdom for life. We can use that, right? After all, I've got a kid who's a junior in high school and a sophomore in high school. We're trying to help navigate some huge decisions right now. If the Lord wills, is good advice for us as a family as we engage that. And you have lots of plans and decisions to make too. But James has got a bigger fish to fry than just our human planning. So he turns to his next statement. And what he begins to address is not just their action, but their motive. And he says, listen, you boast in your arrogant schemes. Such boasting is evil. All of a sudden, it's getting serious, right? The onions, the proverbial onions starting to stink. The word boast uh, comes from a word that actually uh, means, it talks about your neck, but actually is kind of the idea of lifting your head up high, like carrying yourself high, right? Uh, and, and it's... Um, it talks about glorying or, or finding worth. And it's actually an incredibly positive word in its usage in other places in Scripture. However, in this case, this positive word becomes negative because they are glorying in what is translated in the NIV, their arrogant schemes. Now, this word is another interesting word. Do you know what it actually means in its translation? It actually means boasting. Now, this is weird. We said James loves to plan words, right? He says, you boast in your boastfulness. And when he says that, well, the NIV does a good job translating it because it wouldn't make sense to us. What he's saying is, good boasting in your bad boasting. You see this? Like you take what's supposed to be good and you do it completely the wrong way. That word arrogance or boastfulness is the same word that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in 1 John chapter 2 when talking about worldliness. You remember the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride, the boastfulness of life. It's that idea of self-sufficiency, that I got this. I've got this whole thing figured out, and I'm on my own, and I don't need anyone or anything. And so they're boasting 
in their abilities. They are, in essence, glorifying themselves and the plans they've made. Perhaps in modern vernacular, it would sound like this. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. This sounds like just about every Facebook post you've read in the last couple of weeks, right? Look what I'm about to do. Look at all these great pictures. James is saying, you are totally missing it. Because we are meant to boast. It is a good thing. But not in ourselves. We're meant to boast in God. Who has a plan. A cosmic plan that doesn't just earn a profit for you, but redeems and restores the whole world. It's a plan big enough and powerful enough and worthy enough to submit yourself to. And it's a plan that brings glory to God. And James continues to peel back another layer of the onion. Because it's not only what they do, their action, and it's not only their motive, but now it's also what I'll call their failure. He says, the good things you know you're supposed to do, you don't do them, and that is sin, he says. Not doing the things we know we're supposed to do. There's what's called in theological terms, sins of commission, the things we do that are wrong, and sins of omission, the things we don't do that we should do, and therefore... We're wrong. And James is saying, here is one such thing. So what is it that they're not doing? Well, you can sum it up, and James would, would be very happy if we did it this way, because this is how he introduced his whole sermon or his whole letter. What is it they are hearing, but not doing? Correct? So what are they hearing and not doing? Well, based on the first two things we've said, we could say they are hearing but not doing, trusting God. They are failing to trust God and instead trusting themselves. Or go deeper, they are failing to give God the glory that He deserves and submit to His plans and instead are glorifying themselves for their own plans. And both of these things would be 100% correct. And yet I think there's something more going on here. Because this little pericope, this little section here about planning, falls in a bigger context of this sermon where James is continually talking to them about what it means to love their neighbor. Love their neighbor with their tongue. Love their neighbor by not showing favoritism. Love their neighbor in their their works, not just in their stated beliefs. Love their neighbor uh, by, by promoting peace and not selfish ambition. And what you will find next week, or if you've already read through the book, is he's going to turn and talk about rich, how rich people, some rich people, possibly not part of, of this community of faith, have damaged other people in their pursuits. And so I find it super difficult to believe that James is just talking in a esoteric kind of trust God and glorify God kind of way, though that's super important. I think he's talking about their failure to love their neighbor. Is it somehow in the plans they're making, it is keeping, it is preventing them from loving their neighbor, or possibly even worse, and we know this is possible because of some of the other texts we've read in James' letter, 
that their gains are actually coming at the expense of their neighbor. Now, we don't know for certain, but we do understand when everything is about my plans, there is damage in the wake of our life's boat ride. And James is saying, to not do these things is actually sin. Again, connecting that to chapter 1 of James, we understand that when James says the word sin, he's talking about death, right? He's talking not just about the bad things that we do. He's talking about sin that brings death and not just ultimate separation from God in the end of days because these are people who are believers, but violence in its wake, violence towards God, violence towards ourselves, violence towards other people around us. He's saying that your sins of omission are actually doing incredible damage in people's lives. Do you see this? Because we tend to think, what difference does it make? I'm just going to do my business thing over here. And James is saying, open your eyes. There's all kinds of ramifications to the decisions that you're making. Not just the things that you do against someone, but the ways in which you don't do the things that God calls you to do for your neighbor. James says this is equally sin. And so ultimately their failure, you could say, maybe is not trusting God, maybe is not glorifying God, probably it is both of those. Maybe it's not loving their neighbor, probably it is that. But ultimately what it is, is an act of rebellion against God himself. An unwillingness to obey him, or to follow him, or to live the way that he calls us to. It's what James calls adultery, right? Idolatry. Loving ourselves instead of God. Because as Jesus rightly points out, a true love of God with our whole heart, soul, and mind always manifests itself in a love for our neighbor. What you love, you worship. What you worship, you obey. And therefore, your sins of omission go all the way back to the primary object of your affection. So what do we do? (laughs) Listen, I am not suggesting, nor do I think James is suggesting, that every single plan you make is somehow rooted in this massive rebellion against God. What I think he is trying to get them to see, as he's trying to get them to see through this whole letter, and therefore us as well, is open your eyes to a bigger picture of the world and what God is doing in the world, not just about what you want to do in the world. So I would say, make plans. Keep making plans, but always evaluate your plans. And when you evaluate your plans, consider two things. First, do my plans enable me to trust and glorify God? We're thinking about college for Jackson. We're making new plans budgetary in the midst of massive inflation in our world. Is that affecting anyone else? Have you tried to get gas recently, right? Have you tried to buy bread at the grocery store? Uh, and, and I don't mean to be 
cavalier about that. I understand massive things are going on in the world that are far worse and that are affecting that. I'm just saying, in the smallest of your plans, your monthly budgets, to the biggest of your plans, your retirement, your kids' education, job changes, whatever they may be, always be asking yourself, the plans that I'm making, are they enabling me to trust God and are they enabling me to bring glory to God? And then secondly, are my plans enabling me to love my neighbor? Or are they keeping me from loving my neighbor? When you look at your family's monthly budget, be honest with yourself in evaluating it. How we have set up our budget, is it enabling me to trust God? Am I taking some faith-filled risks? Am I glorifying God with my possessions and my financial means? Is there means within my budget to love my neighbor? Or is this just all about my plans and my pursuit? See how this goes? As you think about bigger decisions, marriage, college, new jobs, be asking yourself these things. Plans are good. New jobs are good. Marriage is good. College is good. Lots of good choices in college. And yet each of us are wired in particular ways, have particular gifts and talents, and tend to want to trust them instead of seeing God's bigger story that He's unveiling and seeing how these next decisions fit into that bigger story. James would say, don't be presumptuous in your planning. And as he pulls back the layer of the onion, he would say, make sure that God is getting the glory of your life lived, not yourself. And as he pulls the onion back further, he would say, and make sure that you are continually building disciplines into your life that enable you to live the way God has called you to live and not just overlooking it altogether. And so you rightly say, as we say all throughout this book of James and every single Sunday together, but how? <laughs> and your question is good. And I say to you, as I do every single week, and as James has said to you, the way that you get from hearing to doing is welcoming. Right? You must welcome the gospel. Is that the issue is not that you've got to be a better planner and somehow include God in it. The issue is not that you've got to work harder at loving your neighbor. The issue is that we have misplaced affection. We need to renew our love for God that leads to worship and breeds obedience. The issue always lies there. And when we welcome in the gospel, when we see and experience who we are, we look in the mirror, as James says, and we don't forget who we are, warts and all, and yet sons and daughters of God through Christ. What happens is our love for God deepens. And it transforms us. So let me invite you to welcome in the gospel this morning in this particular way. James's audience, he says, they act a certain way based on a certain motive that leads to a failure. 
Let me tell you the gospel in those three frames. Jesus, God's Son, dwelling in heaven in all its glory, rightfully deserving that place, instead submits himself to God's greater plan. Don't you think that Jesus in heaven had certain ideas of what might be a good way to live that glorious existence? And yet, he willingly submits himself to God. He sees the bigger plan and embraces it. And in his earthly life, he lives in such a profound dependence upon God that this is how he speaks of himself in John's Gospel. He says, listen, I don't even say things on my own. I only tell you the things the Father is telling me. Is that even in the things he's saying and doing is based on that. Now listen, you're saying, whoa, we're never going to get there. And you're right. I'm trying to blow you away with Jesus, not tell you what you need to be. Don't you think Jesus would wake up and have certain plans for the day? Right? I'm certain he did. And yet he's constantly hearing from God and making the corrections that need to be made or the affirmations that need to be made. And it ultimately leads to that moment of dire crisis, the night before his crucifixion, in a garden full of sleepy disciples who can't keep watch with him. And he continually presents to God a different plan. But always saying, but your will be done. It is not an animistic tagline. He's speaking to his heart. The Father's plans are more significant. They actually lead to more life than my own. And Jesus fully submits to the plan of God, even though it means descending the Mount of Transfiguration and embracing the cross of crucifixion. This is God's plan for you. This is God's rescue. This is God's love on full display. But why does he do it? What is the motivation of Jesus? Whereas you and I tend to be people who are motivated by our own glory, Jesus says profoundly in John chapter 17, I have glorified you, Father, by completing the work you have given me to do. That is that he has oriented his life in such a way that it's about the glory of God. And it leads not to the sin of omission, but to a victory of inclusion. Where in essence, Jesus could have rightfully looked the other way and said, you know what? These people can't even stay up with me in the garden in my greatest moment of need. Change of plans. Instead, because of God's profound love for you and for me and for those disciples then, Jesus embraced physical human death so that we all might be included in his ultimate victory of resurrection. The great early hymn recorded in Philippians chapter 2 says it this way, that Jesus humbled himself in obedience. 
right? Where does obedience come from? Worship. Where does worship come from? Love. And Jesus loved God and therefore worshipped Him and therefore humbled Himself in obedience, even obedience to death and death on a cross. And therefore, God has lifted Him up to the highest place. A great victory won in the resurrection. Don't you see it? Everything we ought to be and can't, Jesus is. And He invites you to have it on the basis of His work for you. So you could read a passage like this and think, oh gosh, well I screw this one up nearly every single day. Or if you're like me, I do screw this up every single day. And in essence, you would be fair in reading it that way. And yet, you would miss the glory of the Gospel of a God who says, I know you do. And that's why I've come and done it for you. So trust me. And orient your life towards my glory. And walk in my ways. And there you find true life. Can you pray with me?